Hello, everybody. We are the students of Willy Brandt School, and welcome to our podcast through the lens of the UN. In a short while, you will listen to the most pressuring issues around the world from the United Nations perspective. Hello to everyone and welcome to the first episode of our podcast Through the Lens of the United Nations, discussing pressing policy issues through the United Nations perspective. My name is Charlotte Lydia Bock and together with my awesome colleague Adriana Pineda, we will be discussing the currently hot topic, Resolution 4215 on the right to privacy in a digital age. Adriana, what can our listeners look forward to in the upcoming 40 minutes? Well, there is a lot to learn about today. In particular, we will explain why we lack frameworks to protect the right to privacy within the UN system. We will discuss what privacy and surveillance mean and what are its threats. We will focus on the shift toward privacy of health data and the COVID-19 pandemic. And we will discuss the main points of the Resolution 147 approved by the General Assembly. We will also explore health data privacy protection and how UN members can get away with practices that, though complying with UN recommendations, do not acknowledge the right to privacy. That's true. Some states don't even come close to the UN minimum standards. But how to protect personal data then? Dr. Hasnain Bokagi, a specialist in information and communication technologies, as well as e-government and lecturer at the University of Erfurt, will join us to talk about alternatives to protect health data. We will answer the question, can blockchain technologies be the future of data protection? Welcome back. Adriana, before diving into today's resolution, may you can explain to us what do we mean when we talk about civilians and privacy? Privacy is a human right recognizes one in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and in the International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights. Privacy is the right each person has to control who has access to their personal information. Standing against privacy is surveillance, which is, in words of Professor David Leon, the focus, systematic, and rooting attention to personal details for purposes of influence, management, protection, or direction. That sounds almost scary and reminds me of George Orwell's 1984. True. In fact, we're far from that. In his academic article titled The Dangers of Surveillance, Professor Neil Richards from the Washington University School of Law gives a brilliant exposition on the risk of surveillance. To summarize it, he talks about the threats of power and breaching intellectual privacy. Surveillance creates a power relationship between the watcher and the watch with the washer on the powerful position. Having personal information from the observed means that the observer can blackmail, discredit, persuade, and discriminate against the watch. That happens whether the target is aware or, or not of the surveillance. But when the watcher realizes that he's observed, they restrict their own behavior in fear of committing something inappropriate. That is horrifying. Indeed. The observer no longer seeks to know about ideas that, they, that may be socially deviant because of the continual judgment they are submitted to. This means a restriction of their civil rights, like freedom of thought or freedom of assembly, therefore undermining other human rights. Wow, well, that sounds like science fiction, but it's reality. Yes, that is a sad truth. Even though privacy is a human right, the topic entered the international political and public agenda eight years ago, when Edward Snowden made public two programs that the U.S. National Security Agency used to spy, allegedly, only on foreigners. 
The first program was PRISM. PRISM took advantage that the world's internet traffic passes through the United States servers and enlisted several internet companies as their providers of intelligence, such as Google, Facebook, Microsoft, and Apple. Upstream, the second program leaked by Snowden, on the other hand, enlisted telecommunication companies for the same purpose. Prisms and Upstream are clear examples of modern programs of mass surveillance and how the internet can turn into an easy and cheap place to gather intelligence and to increase surveillance. But what is the UN take on this shocking human right violating practice, Charlotte? That is a justified question, Adriana. This leads us to the resolution uh, 4215 on the right to privacy in a digital age adopted by the Human Rights Council on 26th of September 2019. The preamble of the resolution highlights the current challenges to privacy, among them the need to create frameworks, the disregard for human rights within the civilians, and the challenge that containing the COVID-19 pandemic posed to safeguard privacy. The resolution calls upon both states and businesses to protect the right to privacy. It asks states to create legislation that safeguards privacy and to give reparation to those whose data was arbitrary or unlawfully collected. The resolution also calls upon businesses to put into place practices that respect privacy. The resolution was presented by Germany on behalf of Brazil, the duo that has been pushing forward the discussion on privacy within the UN. There were remarks by Iran, but also but all but one of the members of the FI-I alliance, a group of states that cooperate in intercepting signals for intelligence gathering. Most of them made a point of what they agree or miss from the resolution, such as a mention of the use of social media by terrorists, um, that's a mention that Iran made, or the removal of sexual orientation and gender identity from the resolution that was from the United Kingdom and New Zealand. In our view, the resolution asks for actions, but it seems that in the name of consensus, the actions are intentionally vague and left to the interpretation of the states. To give some examples on what we mean by that, we will focus for a moment on healthcare data protection, an immensely important part of the discussion about the right to privacy, and especially in the current situation. The pandemic is turning all of our lives upside down as society expresses justified data protection concerns while using, for example, a COVID-19 tracking app, which sends you an alarm to your phone if you are in the vicinity of a person infected with COVID-19. This is what you notice as a citizen. The question we aim to shed light on now is about what a state can really track as an ordinary or extraordinary measure to fight the pandemic. Charlotte, may you explain in more detail the recommendations outspoken by the UN on health care data protection before we explore which measures state are in fact applying to fight the pandemic? Sure, Adriana. Well, the recommendations on the protection and use of health-related data, 74277 from August 2019, stipulates that the processing of health-related data is lawful if it is carried out in the public interest and appropriate safeguards are provided. But what is meant with public interest is left to the definition of the states. Still, the guidance is to serve as an international baseline for minimum data protection standards for health-related data. That includes, for example, that data processing of health-related data is lawful if the data subject has given his or her free, specific, informed and explicit consent to the data processing. Since companies such as Google and Facebook force you to accept their terms and conditions, this explicit consent to the institution's or company's privacy policy makes their <clears throat> lawfulness quite ironic. The revealing must read to Williams capitalism by Professor Shashana Zuboff was not last to prove this. 
we are more raw material to those companies than subjects of protection. <laughs> True. We're living in a harsh reality. So even more interesting to get to know. What does this arbitrary nature of privacy policy mean in the light of pandemics? In the note of the Secretary General 75147 from July 2020, the Special Rapporteur on the Right to Privacy, Joseph Kanataki, addresses the impact of COVID-19 on the right to privacy, data protection and surveillance. He points out that there is no consensus yet on which COVID-19-related measures taken work or do not work for which country and why. Hence, he calls to meet the strict tests of proportionality and necessity. Sounds quite discretionary again. So, what are ordinary measures that state can apply to fight the pandemic? In order to avoid the spread of a communicable disease, public health authorities have the right to A, know who is affected by the disease, and B, order strict quarantine and isolation under rigid sanitation rules. Named as a classical tool, contact tracing is an ordinary measure that public health entities can use to contain a disease, even though it's a private privacy intrusive, since it requires a patient to open up with whom she or he have might been in contact over a certain period of time. I got to know that the special rapporteur, Joseph Kanatasi, emphasizes that within the UN recommendations, accessing a smartphone is not classified as part of traditional contact tracing or a necessary measure. We must remember that in most developed countries, the fight against COVID-19 as of mid-July 2020 had been successfully carried out without the use of smartphone-related technologies. That is absolutely true. Still, contact tracing is considered the most effective measure for the containment of a communicable disease with no alternative or substitute currently available. This indicates that the right to privacy does not need to be absolute. In fact, if public interest is socially valued above the right to privacy, other rights such as freedom of movement and freedom of association must be subordinate. The special rapporteur states that a country can even decide to utilize techno technological civilians if regarded as necessary, as a response to the COVID-19 pandemic. The type and amount of personal information required and collected should be only that which is strictly necessary. Hence, state must be trusted to act in an ethically appropriate manner, since the UN has no sanction mechanism if states do not meet the recommended minimum requirements. Indeed. That is a huge issue within the UN. States can enact very discretionary legislation without even coming close to conforming with UN framework. To demonstrate the extent to which this can take on, I'm citing the note 75147 by the Secretary General, which states that public health was held to be such a paramount matter of public interest that, in some countries, the ordinary, and not even extraordinary, search and seizure powers of a public health authority are often greater than those of the police. This extraordinary situation of the pandemic empowers public health authorities to apply measures which can include literally anything imaginable that is necessary to reduce, eliminate or remove a threat to public health, like orders that any person must undergo a medical examination or orders that any substance or object be seizured, destroyed or disposed of. But many states do not even have to resort to extraordinary measures. What do you mean by that? Adopted measures to fight COVID-19 are sometimes very questionable. What is even more outstanding, however, is that some states did not even have to resort to extraordinary measures. The Republic of Korea, as well as Israel, both are using hybrid systems of technical surveillance, conventionally used in law enforcement and for counterterrorism to fight the pandemic. Interestingly, in the Republic of Korea, the state can legally and by default track as conventional method credit and debit card transactions. 
This means that Korean authorities can see where a person has shopped, eaten, and traveled. Additionally, the state can obtain phone location logs from mobile operators or details captured by the extensive networks of surveillance cameras. Israel goes a step further and uses technologies designed for counterterrorism to fight the spread of COVID-19. For instance, the Israeli security agency provides the government of Israel with the roots of coronavirus carriers and lists of individuals with whom they have been in close contact. Or, in the case of Malta, even though emphasized as a good case practice when it comes to successful handling of the virus, the state did not wait for the existence of a public health emergency to give itself a legal basis to access all of a person's technical device. As an ordinary measure, the Malta Public Health Act provides health authorities with the legal right to inspect or extract any record relevant to public health, which gives them the power to seize any technical device at any time from any individual. And that's without a pandemic backing them up. Huh. That is privacy invasion, but on a high and legal level. <laughs> What do the cases tell us? Remember the recommendations on the protection and use of health-related data, like the principle that health-related data must be processed in a transparent, lawful, and fair manner, and limited to the purpose of which the data processing is to take place? Well, more than 70% of United Nations member states do not even come close to meeting these standards. And in terms of surveillance? The vast majority of countries are very far from meeting these standards. As of July 2020, less than 10% of the 193 member countries were even close to meeting the standards needed for a government to ensure that citizens' privacy is adequately protected and respected in the face of government surveillance. Indeed, that is a clear proof that the right to privacy in the digital age, even more during the pandemic, are a very arbitrary matter for member states. You brought it to the point, Adriana. The problem is that member states do not face any sanctions or familiar fines if they apply measures which definitely fall under the category of extraordinary measures as by default practice on an everyday basis. These recommendations, which are only awake and open to interpretation, also leave room for further, even more privacy-invasive civilians measures. At this point, we would like to draw attention to the extreme and yet unresolved problems associated with the speed of technological developments and the resulting possi possibilities and the comparative slowness of policy regulations. True. We as a global society face the challenge that a legal vacuum is being created or rather already exists. Especially with regard to individual biometric data and profiling, there are high risks for the security of personal health data. Profiling can be used to create exact patient profiles, which indicate that which disease a person could get in the future or how old the person is likely to become. Under no circumstances should this data be shared for commercial purposes, such as insurance companies. And this is just the beginning. How do you regulate disruptive technological developments that cannot be predicted today? In this respect, a legal vacuum will emerge even more quickly and even more often. What can the United Nations do to counteract this? That is the question which rapidly has to be solved. Even though private data privacy is the most frequently addressed topic in personal health data literature, followed by data sharing, There are no definite solutions to the problem of personal health data security, if these can exist at all. Some researchers, in desperation, say that an effective way to ensure patients' privacy in healthcare data would be to hide a needle in the haystack. Other methods refer to attribute-based encryption, 
access control and storage path encryption. However, the problem is always present and always poses a huge challenge to data protection and healthcare institutions, especially with regard to the scalability problem of data protection. What seems to be a promising solution are blockchain technologies. The blockchain eliminates the middleman. So blockchain healthcare systems only allow access to healthcare data to persons being part of a blockchain architecture. Yeah, that sounds like a very promising approach indeed. To dive deeper into this topic, we will be talking to Dr. Hasnain Bokahari in the next section. So thank you, Dr. Bokhari. Thank you so much for being with us and being our interview guest for today. And we would like to start with the, the basics, like what makes blockchain secure? Well, thank you very much, uh, Charlotte and Adriana, for your invitation. Uh, straight to your question regarding blockchain, what makes it secure? The answer actually lies in the various techniques and the services that blockchain includes. And these include consensus protocol that exist on blockchain network, the encryption techniques that are a part of that entire cryptographic structure of the network. Then you also have the immutable approach that blockchain uses and the distributed network and the mining techniques that blockchain use. So you can understand blockchain as a as such as a as a chain of various blocks that are sort of connected with each other in comparison to our traditional scenarios the traditional database scenarios the data in blockchain uh, the data is actually saved in one location in traditional scenario and 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 at one server however in blockchain the data is saved at multiple nodes that means its locations are distributed at various servers so that's step one towards security, as this kind of removes the need of centralized entity. Another important feature of, if you want to know what makes blockchain secure, is that the blockchain is uh, supports the immutability of records, which means that any record that is once saved cannot be modified or tampered with. So if you want to make a modification in your let's say existing record then another block would have to be added to the chain you know so its data history would also be accessible on that network and the same goes for the transaction as well once the transaction is executed on a blockchain it cannot be reversed and on top of all that a blockchain uses a, a special encryption techniques which are called as hash cryptography which is like a crypto you can understand hash cryptography as you know it uses eight 32-bit and 64-bit words which are used to encrypt the data but now please note that it is not one time 32-bit and 64-bit or two times 32 or 64-bit it is as many as eight 32 and 64-bit you know uh, techniques uh, encryption techniques which actually makes the blockchain so secure Interesting. Thank you so much for those valuable insights. Mm -hmm. And yeah, well, nothing is perfect and every system is prone to weaknesses. In case of Europe, are there any downsides to blockchain for data protection, particularly with reference to health data? Um, you know, actually, Europe has been among the early adopters of blockchain, along with our new technologies such as big data, 
AI, the artificial intelligence, and Internet of Things, blockchain, you know, is among the top digital priority of Europe due to its particularly, of course, the security. And there are different ways to look at it, you know, the European blockchain scenario. Europe has started, you might be surprised, that its own AI and blockchain investment fund. And the European Commission supports this investment in blockchain by supporting startups and projects through this particular fund. And the European Commission is in partnership with European Investment uh, Fund that has provided, I suppose, up to 100 million euros to set up this first a a European AI and blockchain investment fund. The, another way to look at it is also the European Blockchain Partnership, which is a giant initiative of EU and EEA member states, member states uh, and also the European Commission. And they jointly develop a common EU strategy on blockchain for cross-border public services. So you can understand from these examples how much interest that European Union is taking in blockchain. The ultimate wish is also to develop uh, you know, the uh, European blockchain service infrastructure, which we refer to as EPSI which means in Europe we can access our, let's say, notarized data for our digital audit trails and educational records across Europe. And also our digital identity data can also be accessed anywhere in Europe once this APSI is being, uh, is being established. Now, there is, you know, another way to look at it. You must be aware that Europe has a program called as Horizon 2020 or Horizon Europe. And there are a number of sectors that benefit from the Horizon 2020 program. And EU wants to use blockchain for these sectors. <laughs> now, it would be in, of interest to you and pretty much relevant to the question you asked that healthcare is among the top three sectors along with Internet of Things and uh, cybersecurity, which are going to benefit from uh, blockchain. And currently, our health data exists in Europe in various at various public entities, public and private entities, and there are multiple standards being used regarding our health records. What EU may plan to do is to move our electronic health records, EHR, uh, that will be available at public and private data networks on blockchain network, making the transactions as well as our data more secure. What nice insights you have given us, Professor Bukaheim. Um Moving on to another topic, uh, the resolution, the right of privacy in the digital age calls upon states and enterprise to safeguard the privacy of individuals, but it begs the question, is there anything individuals themselves can do to safeguard their data and particularly, particularly their health data, or are we at the mercy of healthcare providers and governments to safeguard it? <laughs> you know, I believe the uh, resolution you have mentioned, the right to privacy in digital aid, I suppose you're referring to uh, the one that was tabled and approved by the United Nations General Assembly in which uh, United Nations Human Rights Council considered privacy as a fundamental human right. And based on that particular uh, resolution, Human Rights Council advocated that no individual shall be subjected to unlawful interference with her or his privacy. And it could be, be it family or home or any correspondence that person conducts it. Now, you might find it uh, useful, which not a lot of people discuss uh, about, is that the same resolution has very 
clearly pointed out that Human Rights Council will actively debate and invite relevant stakeholders to uh, further discuss the uh, this automated decision making uh, system, you know, which is synonymous with machine learning technologies and artificial intelligence. Now, the United Nations wish that proper safeguards be followed to avoid this impact on the right to privacy. Now, when it comes to our customer to business data, you know, the one that we share with private business entities, we can say that we do have to a larger extent control on it, or at least we can try to have control on it because it is us as individuals and with our consent that we sign up for these web services. So we can always see our privacy settings and choose to leave these services. However, to your question now, when it comes to healthcare data, once we are in the system, we are at the mercy of our healthcare system. Now, countries with stringent data protection and stringent privacy regulations would have, of course, stringent laws. And the weaker states would lead to weak safeguarding mechanisms. I think it's not just the individuals, you know, as you have put it. It's actually the entire civil society and lawmakers alone would have to go hand in hand together because with advancements in technology, look at it every year, particularly the advancements in technology focusing on healthcare industry, we would have to review our laws, analyze them, and by keeping civil society and also academia at the center of lawmaking. Thank you for, for your answer. Finally, um, the UN is a political forum where issues are discussed and standards are set. So far, little has been established on what should be the minimum standards to protect privacy as a human right. As an expert on data protection, what are the key technical issues the UN should be discussing when it comes to privacy? <laughs> the key technical issues that UN should be discussing. You see, when it comes to institutions such as the United Nations, we will have to remember that United Nations alone cannot enforce laws, you know. It can, of course, bring member states together and, and, and conduct dialogue on current state of affairs. To give you an example, you know, at the beginning of our new millennium, uh, when Millennium Development Goals to what we refer to as MDGs were established, the topic of this new technologies was at the top of UN agenda at the beginning of 2000, and two world summits on information societies were conducted, uh, one in 2003 and the second one in 2005. Now, the outcome of these summits was resulted into a very unique and multilateral platform that was known as Internet Governance Forum, or to what we also refer to as IGF. And since 2006, IGF takes place in every continent, in every country, and not in every country, but in every continent it's on a rotating basis. Now, though, uh, you might, must be, uh, might be interested to know that the last one in 2019 was actually taking place in Berlin. Now, IGF is that particular and a perfect forum which works on behalf of UN and it brings representatives of United Nations member states, but not only that, also academia, civil society and IT companies to discuss the major themes in internet and also, you know, the one that you've asked, data protection and privacy. So for United Nations alone, it 
won't be possible to pursue such issues at its assembly, at least for now, you know, which is why there are United Nations supported fora, which are a perfect place to discuss privacy related issues. And now you also mentioned the technical part, the technical issues. So for technical issues, there is another multinational organization called as International Telecommunication Union based in Geneva, which is responsible for discussing these highly technical issues related to internet, telecommunication, and radio signals, and so on. Another way to look at your question would be, from my side, would be to encourage this EU, EU's GDPR-like uh, regulations because I personally find data protection strategies used in GDPR as very useful, which tries, you know, tries to guarantee the lawfulness, fairness, and transparency of data. So if in EU you do not follow the GDPR, you can get fined. I'm not saying that GDPR is a perfect regulation, but considering the rush and the exponential value of data we produce these days. I feel, personally, it may become important that GDPR-like regulations are applied at the wider scale in other continents. And that is something United Nations supported fora can learn and advocate. That's true. Thank you so much for your professional expertise on those topics. You're most welcome, Charlotte. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm sure we, and as well as our listeners, we could take away a, a lot from what you have just told us. So thank you so much for, for being our interviewee for today. Pleasure is mine. Thank you for listening. We hope that we have given you an understanding of the challenges associated with the right to privacy in the digital age and the resulting solutions. Stay curious for the upcoming episodes from our podcast through the lens of the United Nations. And now a ciao from Charlotte and Adriana. And with that, we have come to the end of today's episode. A big thank you to all of the listeners. We will be back with another discussion next week. Please don't forget to subscribe and share. And for the curious ones, visit us at Willy Brandt's Bulletin page for more episodes. <laughs>